right romans so thinking caps on um right from the beginning of even starting to prepare this bible survey which was many moons ago now um i always knew that we'd have to do romans and and, and it always stood as a quite a challenge and uh, so we're going to dive into it tonight we won't do it all tonight obviously but nevertheless uh you know we're gonna scratch the surface really that's that's all we'll do but um nevertheless we'll try and scratch the surface deep enough so that that you know kind of the essence of, of what paul is writing does come across so this is written by paul to the uh, church in in rome the the probable time of his writing it was probably around ad 57 and that would have placed him in corinth or the area of corinth on the third missionary journey which of course we saw last time um, in the Acts of the Apostles and in chapters 18 to 21 that's when Paul was on his third missionary journey and so that's kind of the time of writing and the place of writing is probably Corinth. Now he'd never been to Rome so he was writing to Christians he didn't know, he'd never met, um, he'd heard of them but he'd never been there personally and he was at the time that he wrote he was planning to go there having taken the collection money down to the Jerusalem church. I remember we saw that in Acts. And, um, and this letter was, was to kind of prepare the Romans for his eventual visit. So he was planning to take the money to Jerusalem and then to, um, to go to Rome. Now, it didn't quite turn out the way that Paul planned. He did get to Rome eventually, um, but um, as a Roman prisoner awaiting trial, and that was kind of like where Acts of the Apostles ended with Paul under house arrest in, in Rome. So he got to Rome eventually, and uh, so this letter did end up preparing them for his visit eventually. And the letter really is, is the most systematic treatise of the Christian faith in the Bible. It's, uh, it's less of a letter, it's, it's unlike other letters that Paul wrote, but it's, it's very much a, a treatise. It's kind of a, the closest thing that you get to a little systematic theology. So it's more that than a, a private letter. And uh, all we can do is to scratch the surface, but nevertheless, uh, that's what we'll, we'll try and do. So dive straight into chapter one, and uh, the first eight verses of Paul opening his greetings um, he, he tells the, the Roman Christians how he was called to be an apostle and a servant of Jesus Christ and uh, told them that the gospel that he preached had been promised through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, obviously referring there to the Old Testament. And one of the things we're going to see is Paul arguing um, how the New Testament, the New Covenant of Jesus, was always implicit in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And he goes on to say that Jesus was um, a human being uh, due to his, um, you know, the fact that he'd descended from King David. So Paul's saying Jesus was man. And yet he says as well that he was attested as being divine. So Jesus was God become man. And, uh, and that was, Paul says, by the spirit of holiness. So he calls there the Holy Spirit, the spirit of holiness, through the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. So Paul says, I'm an apostle of Jesus and I preach the gospel uh, that was promised in the Old Testament, and the essence of it is that Jesus is man, and Jesus is God as well. So there's kind of like the opening greetings. Um, verses 8 to 15, you get kind of like the introduction to the letter, to the subject matter. Here, Paul kind of like gets going. 
and uh, he, he tells them that their faith has been reported all over the world. So, so news of the Roman church was spreading far and, and, and wide. Let's be very clear here that when I'm talking about the Roman church, I'm talking about the Christian church in Rome in New Testament times. I'm not talking about the Catholic church, which was something that happened entirely later. Completely disassociate that term in your mind. This has got nothing to do with the Catholic church whatsoever. So he's saying, you Christians in Rome, you have been, you know, the news of your faith has gone out worldwide. And Paul reassures them that he prays for them much. And he tells them that he's longing to visit them, can't wait to actually get to see them. And, uh, and, and he says, and he wants to, to, to come and see them so that they can encourage him and uh, that he can encourage them. And he says, you know, that there can be mutual upbuilding. He didn't just want to come along, hey, I'm the apostle and I'm going to build you up. He said, you can help me, you can build me up. And so you've got that, that mutual building up that, you know, of each other that the church is all about. And, um, and he said that although he'd been prevented many times from seeing them, so it was clear that Paul had often kind of hoped he could set out, but never got around to it. So he said he'd been prevented from seeing them quite a lot. And, uh, but nevertheless, he wanted to, to go and get a harvest amongst them, both Greeks and non-Greeks. Um, you know, because obviously you've got the Greeks and you've got the Romans as well, you know, all the cultures mixed up. And... Um, and he says, amongst the wise and amongst the foolish. So he says, I want to come and see you all, and I want to be a blessing to you, whether you're, you know, Roman, Greek, whatever, whether you're intelligentsia or just, you know, kind of, um, you know, IQ 100, national average, whatever it is. And uh, he probably chucks that other bit in because some of the rest of what he says, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, sort of like the, the more educated amongst them would have probably understood it a little bit more easily. And, uh, and in verses 16 and 17, which I will actually read out now, he sets the theme for the letter. He, he kind of, this is the essence of what he's going to explain to them. I'll just read it. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel... A righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, and then he quotes Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. And that basically, that statement is what he's going to expound in the rest of the letter. He says this is in essence what Christianity is. And he says that it's a righteousness from God that he gives to us, and we receive it by faith. And by quoting the Old Testament, here Habakkuk 2 verse 4, by quoting that, the just shall live by faith, the righteous shall live by faith, again he's immediately showing that the New Testament, the New Covenant, was there in the Old Covenant. It was all there in the Old Testament, all right? Nothing new about it, it was there from the word go. And he says that it's first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, because, of course, the Old Testament, the whole of the Old Testament, you know, all that, that, that God did and revealed of himself, etc., etc., that was all leading up to it being given to Israel as God's people. So, obviously, salvation was first to the Jew, because salvation came through the Jews. Jesus himself was a Jew. And so he says, right, that is what we're going to be exploring. The essence of the Christian faith is that there is a righteousness from God, 
and you get it by faith. And it was there in the Old Testament as well. And now to the end of the chapter, from verse 18 to the end of the chapter, we, we come to the, the first part of his argument. And what we're going to do, chapters 1 to 8 are, are by and large a logical argument that unfolds, and I'm going to sort of kind of take you through it bit by bit. And the first part of his argument, remember he's talking about a righteousness that comes from God by faith. But the first thing he does is to establish that everyone before God is unrighteous. Because you're only going to need a righteousness from God if you haven't got any righteousness of your own. And so this is what he begins to do. He shows and demonstrates that everyone is unrighteous, and that applies to the Jews and it applies to the Gentiles, and that all people, everyone, therefore, is under the wrath, the anger, the judgment of a holy God and needs salvation. So the first thing he does is to establish everyone's need of salvation because they are themselves unrighteous. And he does this, first of all, by demonstrating. Um, because remember, he, he, he's saying that unbelievers, they reject God, they reject Jesus, they reject the truth of the Bible. And the first thing that he establishes is that creation itself witnesses to the reality and power of God. The argument is quite simple. The fact that there is creation means that there is a creator. It's as simple as that. How does nothing turn into something all on its own? And Paul says that in creation the power and glory of God is manifestly made known. And yet the point is, mankind still rejects him. So Paul says the unrighteousness of all people can be seen in that they reject the God of the Bible even though creation argues that he must be there. Because how can you have a creation if a creator didn't put it there? How can you have something coming out of nothing? It's a nonsense. And so Paul says it is obvious that there is a God and that man is without excuse in rejecting him. And Paul says that when man rejects the God of the Bible, and i.e. the God who actually is, the one true God, all right, when the one true God is rejected, then what this leads to is idolatry, putting the created things in the place of God. It leads to immorality of every kind. You always see it sexually. Things go downhill when the God of the Bible is rejected and that mankind is increasingly filled with every kind of wickedness. And of course, all the readers of Paul's letter had to do is exactly what we have to do today. Look around. Look around. Every kind of wickedness. So Paul is establishing that it is obvious that people are in need of salvation. And he says that the way that, that, that God actually judges people in the present tense, all right, that there's an ongoing judgment built into all this. And he says that what God does is that he actually hands mankind over to the wickedness that they want. And the judgment, the way that judgment works in the now, I mean, there's a future judgment to come when people die, but the way that God's judgment works here and now is he says, that's what you want, then have it in increasing measure. And of course, this is one of the reasons why sin increases and increases and things go from bad to worse. Because God says, right, that's what you want, have it. You want to live a life as if I wasn't there. By all means, do it. And Paul says that he hands men over to their sin and therefore sin increases its power. 
Now, as we move into chapter 2, having established that creation witnesses to the reality and the power of God, Paul now moves on to argue that people can know as well, not just that God is there, but that he's holy. And people can know that God is holy because they have a built-in sense of right and wrong. And of course, this is universal to mankind. People disagree. Different cultures, different people disagree as to what's right and what's wrong. But everyone has a sense of right and wrong being built into the universe. No one is without the concept of right or wrong. And Paul says, right, okay, this shows us not only that God is there, creation does that, but this shows us that God is holy because creation has a sense of right and wrong built into it. But then Paul goes one further and he says, right, now we can demonstrate as well that everyone can know not only that God is there and not only that God is holy because of their sense of built in right or wrong, but also they can all know that they're sinners before this God because they pass judgment on other people and yet they do themselves what they condemn other people for. And I've often explained it, you know, sort of like this. This is the picture. Imagine that when you're born, every time you pass a moral judgment, then a tape recorder rolls. So every time you say, oh, they shouldn't have done that, or every time you said you were wrong, or every time you said, oh, that's, that's not on, then it's recorded. Now, when a man stands before God, if that tape recorder is played back, out come your Ten Commandments, as it were. Now then, the question is, with all the moral judgments we make in our lives, do we live by our Ten Commandments? We say that other people are wrong for breaking this code, that code, we break it ourselves. And so the point is, we break our own lowly moral code, let alone God's. And so Paul is arguing these three things. We can know that God is there, we can know that God is holy, and we can know that we are sinners. And he says, a mankind is without excuse. And he also just tags on, and in the light of this, neither can you justly say that God has no right to judge us. You often, you know, people say that, don't they? If they don't want to believe in God, they say, oh, you know, who, who is, you know, the idea of God judging is abhorrent to them. They think, oh, you know, what right has he got? And yet Paul's just established, but we, the creatures, we judge each other. What if we judge each other and we broke, break our own laws? How on earth can we say it's unjust for God to judge us when God is the only being who actually does keep to his laws? So you can't say it's wrong for God to judge. We judge for heaven's sake. We make moral judgments on people. And so what he's saying is that all this, it shows that mankind is without excuse. Everyone stands under God's judgment. And if people were prepared to be honest, they know it. And if they don't know it, it's not because they can't know it, it's because they don't want to know it, it's because they're turning a blind eye to it. And Paul says, and yet also this judgment of God is also his kindness that's seeking to bring people um, to an end of it and to lead them to repentance. So even as God hands people over to sin, which makes them worse and worse and worse, at least that increases the odds that maybe their consciences, as it were, will click in and realise that they need this salvation that Paul is talking about. And so he says everything that God does 
is designed to bring people to repentance so that they can realise that they need salvation. And of course, he'll then go on to argue how that salvation works. But he's establishing here so far that everybody needs to be saved. And yet he says the ironic thing is that because men and women are so stubborn and because they're so unrepentant, rather than all this deepening in sin, turning them to God in repentance, that normally how it works out is that it stores up more and more judgment to come upon them in the final day, if indeed they die having rejected God's salvation. And so he says, the truth of the matter is, he's largely writing to Gentiles here, but there would have been plenty of Jews in, in, in the church there as well, and in Rome in general. But he sums up by saying, look, so can you see that God's law is actually written on the Gentiles' hearts, all right? and that their consciences bear witness to right and wrong, and that their consciences demonstrate quite clearly that they fall short of their own right and wrong. And he says, therefore, even though the Gentiles didn't have the law of Moses, that was written on tablets of stone and given to Israel, nevertheless, the Gentiles have no more excuse than Israel does. Because it would be easy for the Gentiles to say, well, yeah, Israel's without excuse. They had the law of Moses written on the tablets of stone. And Paul's saying, no, hang on, you can't say this doesn't apply to you because you Gentiles, you've got the law of God written on your actual hearts. And the argument that I've given you proves that that is true. And so he says that, you know, that it wasn't the fact that Israel had the law and Israel had circumcision. He said that was never the means of salvation. So salvation was never just for Israel. He says that it was merely the reason that God gave Israel the law was merely to show them that they couldn't keep them and that they were sinners. And so what Paul is saying is God gave Israel the law to show them they were sinners and needed salvation. And in exactly the same way, God has written the law on the hearts of Gentiles and that they, just like the Jews, know that they can't keep God's law and that they need salvation from God. So the argument is thus far. Creation shows us that a creator is there. Conscience shows us that he is holy. And condemning others for what we ourselves do proves that we're sinners. Because if we can't even keep our own humble, pathetic little moral code that we condemn others for breaking, if we can't even keep that, it's obvious that we're not keeping God's holy laws and commandments either. So, what Paul is saying, and all that is to the Gentiles what the law and circumcision was to the Jews. So basically he's saying, Israel knows, the Jews know that they need salvation because they can't keep the law God's given them. The Gentiles likewise know they need salvation because they can't keep the law that God has written on their hearts. So, therefore, everyone, Jew and Gentile, are under God's wrath. They are consciously under God's wrath, because all men know that they're sinners, really. And therefore, they need salvation. And that is true both of Jew and Gentile. Now, just to remind you that there's a tape in the catalogue called What About the Unevangelized that, 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 that concentrates on that little bit that we've just covered in greater detail. So I just chuck that in for anyone who wants to pursue it. Okay, right, so now this brings us on to chapter 3. And what Paul is saying, having said, all right, that the, the, the Jews had the law and the Gentiles have the law written on their hearts, okay, um, Paul answers the question, 
is he therefore saying that the Jewish law and circumcision were useless? He says, you know, is, is, is this to say that there's no advantage of being a Jew? And he says, well, no, of course it doesn't mean that the law was useless. And he says, yes, of course it was advantageous to be a Jew. Because Israel, after all, had the words of God, i.e. the Old Testament scriptures, all right? And, and he says that, that, that God's faithfulness shines out even in their unfaithfulness to him. So the point is, with the, the history that the Jewish nation had, I mean, crumbs, their very unfaithfulness makes God's faithfulness to them shine out. So the Jews did actually have every advantage. And, um, you know, and, and, and he says that, that, that even Israel's sin and unfaithfulness enhances the truthfulness and the faithfulness of God and, and, and more and more shows forth his, his glory. So the point is that Israel, as God's nation, they had God's law. Their, their continued failure to keep it stands as a comparison against the holiness and the glory of God who gave the law. So he's saying, look, even Israel's sinfulness just goes to show how wonderful God's holiness actually is by way of contrast. So he says, no, I'm not saying there's no, you know, that, that the Jews have no advantage, and I'm not saying that the law was the waste of time. He says all that was right, proper and needed, but the point is it was all there just to show people that they needed to be saved. So now he does a second kind of summing up of the argument so far, and he says, look, everyone are under sin. All are under sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He says, including, including the Jews who have the law. And he then quotes from the Psalms and Isaiah, passages from the Psalms and Isaiah that say exactly that. All right. So he says, therefore, as far as the Jews and the law are concerned, it was given not to make Israel righteous by obeying the law, but the law was given to Israel to show the Jews that they could not obey the law, and therefore it made them aware that they were sinful, and that if they were to be saved, it would have to be by some means other than the law. It would have to be through something that God did, rather than something they did. And, uh, and of course, everything we've covered so far means it's the same for the Gentiles. God's law written on their hearts was to show them that they can't keep it and to show them that they, if they're to be saved, it's got to be through something that God does rather than something that they do. And we're back to Paul's opening verses about it's a righteousness from God. You have none of your own, therefore you cannot be saved on your own efforts. That's what he's arguing. Right, he now moves on to the next stage of the argument. He's established everyone is under sin. Everyone is unrighteous. There is nothing anyone can do of themselves to get themselves right with God because they're under his judgment because of their sinfulness. But what he moves on to now is to say that through Jesus, now we're coming on to the heart of the gospel, he says through Jesus... God has made known a righteousness that is apart from the law. So he's saying Jesus has brought a different way. Remember, the law was never meant to be a way to God. The law was there to show you you couldn't get to God. You were stuck. You're a sinner. Nothing you can do about it. So he says Jesus has made known a righteousness that is apart from the law. And Paul says, and yet... Both the law and the prophets, i.e. the Old Testament, testified to it. So what he's saying is 
The Old Testament represents God's law. No one can keep it. That shows you that you're sinners. But he says, now God has shown us a righteousness that you get in a way other than through the law. And there it is in the Old Testament. And he says that this righteousness that God has made known apart from the law comes through faith in Jesus to all who believe. So what he says, we've seen that all are under sin and there's nothing you can do about it. You cannot be saved, you have no righteousness of your own. But he says now, because of what God has done in Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, then Jesus gives you a righteousness that is enough to get you saved. So Paul says, all have sinned, but now, because of Jesus, all can also be justified by God's grace. He says, because of this redemption that has come through Jesus. And the picture of redemption, to redeem, means to buy something back. And very specifically in the ancient world, it often meant to buy out of the slave market. You'd redeem a slave. And so the picture here is that where in the slave market of sin, Jesus has come along, he's paid the price so that we can walk out of the slave market of sin, so that we can be redeemed, brought back from our sinfulness, and that this has come through Jesus. Paul says that he was our atoning sacrifice, or more technically, our propitiation. Now, to propitiate means to satisfy. And the death of Jesus, because he took on himself the sin of the world, <coughs> Jesus' death has satisfied God's holy character. And it satisfied it because all the sin that was not properly dealt with has now been punished and dealt with through the death of Jesus. So therefore, this means that God can make righteous those who believe in Jesus, but without himself being unrighteous by just ignoring the sin problem. Because if God just said, <coughs> oh no, forget, you know, I'll forget about your sin coming to heaven anyway, then God would himself be being unrighteous because he'd be going against his holiness. But through the death of Jesus, <coughs> because God dealt with the sin of the world through the death of Jesus, God can now justify those who believe in Jesus, but without himself behaving in any way whereby he could be said to be being unrighteous himself by just ignoring or excusing sin. So Paul says, therefore, justification, or getting right with God, or being saved, all these phrases would refer to the same thing, <coughs> justification is by faith in Jesus, and it is not through the law or through works. So therefore, because you do not need the law to be saved, it therefore includes Gentiles as well. If it needed the law, it could only refer to the Jews. But because God now justifies people apart from the law, it means that the Gentiles <coughs> are in there with a the chance as well. And he says it doesn't mean that the law is nullified in any way at all, but he says Jesus' death fulfilled the law. So therefore, this justification by faith doesn't go against God's law in the Old Testament. Rather, it, it fulfilled it, because Jesus fulfilled all the demands of the law. Now, in chapter 4, what he does now is he moves on to demonstrate 
how this justification by faith rather than law was in the Old Testament all the time. And he goes on to argue, there's nothing new about this. It's not a new doctrine. It's not a new teaching. It was there in the Old Testament from the word go. And he demonstrates this, that justification is by faith rather than through the works of the law. He demonstrates this through the example of Abraham. <coughs> and in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, we have these words. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So what we have here in Genesis, in the first book of the Bible, we have a statement that Abraham was saved by faith. He simply believed and acted on what God had said. Now, the important thing here is that this statement that Abraham was justified by faith occurs years and years and years before the law came through Moses. So what he's saying, it's obvious in the Old Testament that the coming of the law was never meant to be the means of salvation. The means of salvation we've got in Genesis 15. It's believing God. The law came much later. So what we actually have here <coughs> is that the New Covenant, or what we call the New Covenant, the New Testament, actually predates the Old Testament or Covenant. So justification by faith was around long before the law because that was around at the time of Abraham. The law came through Moses, and that was years and years and years later. And what he then does, actually read this, he, he quotes King David at this point, one of the Psalms. And in Psalm 32, and I'm going to read the first two verses, remember, he's, he's establishing that this idea of being justified by faith, apart from works of the law, wasn't new. He was saying it was there in the Old Testament as well. Now then, this is King David, Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. That's what atonement is all about, the covering of sin. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. So there you have King David rejoicing in the fact that he was saved by faith. That the Lord didn't count his sins against him any way at all. No talk of the law there. King David was perfectly aware that he was going to go to heaven, that he was saved, not because he kept the law, but because he had faith in God. And so Paul quoting the Old Testament in this way, remember he starts off by quoting Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. He's showing, look, throughout the Old Testament, all the saints in the Old Testament knew that salvation was by faith. It was never by the works of the law. And of course the point is that this justification by faith, alright, is for the uncircumcised as well as the circumcised. I.e. he's saying salvation is not exclusively for Israel. And the reason is quite simple. When Abraham was justified by faith, he was uncircumcised. So although Abraham was the first person of what it was to become the Jewish nation, arguably, at this point, he wasn't actually the first Jew, as it were. 
So the point is, Paul says that Abraham, as it were, is not just the father of Israel and of those who are circumcised. He says that also Abraham is the father of all the Gentiles as well who were uncircumcised. So can you see, because the Old Testament tells us that Abraham was justified by faith, and because he himself wasn't circumcised, this shows us that salvation is universal. It was never intended to be just for Israel. It was never intended to be just for Jews. It was first to Israel because Jesus was a Jew. Salvation came through the Jews. But salvation, this justification before God, was never ever intended to purely be just for the Jews. It was for the Gentiles as well. And Paul argues that because Abraham was justified by faith, he believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That because that happened before he was circumcised, therefore it shows us that Abraham as the father of faith was the father not just of Israel, but was the father of all the Gentile believers as well. So therefore, Abraham, he believed God's promises against all the odds, all right? And uh, re remember that he, he was, although he became the father of many nations, you'll remember that he had no male heir, and even when he was an old man, and even when his wife Sarah was too old to have a child, all right, God's promise to him was that he was going to be a father of many nations, yet he didn't have a son. He was too old to have a son. Sarah was too old to have a son, all right? And yet, God said, this is going to be the case. And so Abraham believed the promises of God, even against all the odds. And ultimately, the picture here, Paul says, is you'll remember that when Isaac was born, and the miracle happened, all right, Isaac was born, you'll remember that God asked him to sacrifice Isaac and take him to the altar and to kill him. Now, Abraham was willing to do that in obedience to God for the simple reason that Abraham reckoned that if I do kill Isaac in obedience to God, God will give him back to me by raising him from the dead. Now, as it turned out, God at the last minute said, no, don't kill Isaac, and he provided him with the lamb instead. But the point is, the whole picture here in the life of Abraham is believing that God would raise his son from the dead. And so what we have here is the picture that salvation is by what? The works of the law? Well, no, the law wasn't around in the time of Abraham. Was it by being circumcised and being Jewish? No, Abraham wasn't circumcised. How were you justified? by believing in Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. And that is the picture in the life of Abraham as the father of faith. So therefore, Isaac symbolizes Jesus in it all. And because Jesus died, our sins are dealt with. And because he rose again, we are justified, i.e. we are made righteous. And that is Paul's argument. We're justified by faith. We're put right with God by believing in Jesus and that God raised him from the dead. Now in chapter 5, now where Paul goes now, he's established man's need of salvation. And he's demonstrated how he can be justified by, by faith in Jesus. So to be justified, to be made righteous before God to have this righteousness from God as a gift 
apart from the law, i.e. it's not based on anything that you have to do. It's entirely a gift from God, and it is received by believing on Jesus. So, therefore, we need salvation, and if we believe in Jesus, we are justified. And remember, justified, the meaning is justified, never sinned. All right? Justified, never sinned. So that the moment someone believes on Jesus, it is just as if they never sinned. Their sins are forgiven, they're dealt with, they went on the cross with Jesus, and therefore that person is right with God. There is no more separation between them and God. So therefore, that is justification, to be rescued from the penalty of sin. Remember, Jesus is a saviour. To save, to rescue. So, you know, same word. So where we've got so far is that Paul has said, we've established that we need to be saved. And he's demonstrated that we are delivered, we're rescued from the penalty of sin, i.e. God's judgment, that we would end up in the lake of fire, that we're delivered from that by believing on Jesus. And that is justification. But having covered that, he now moves on. And what he moves on to now is sanctification. And by sanctification, we mean deliverance, not from the penalty of sin, that's justification. We move on now to deliverance from the power of sin. So that what happens is, the moment we believe in Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to us. In a sense, it's an accounting term. If I transfer £500 from my account into your account, I've imputed £500 to your account. It was mine, now it's yours. So what happened, the moment we believe on Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus is credited, it is imputed to us. So justification, to be delivered from the penalty of sin, is righteousness imputed. But then God wants to move us on so that we are then set free, not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. And when we look at being set free from the power of sin, we're looking at righteousness imparted. And what we're going to see now is that once you become a Christian, God's plan for our life then is to deal with us so that the righteousness of Jesus that's been imputed to us, hence we've been saved from the penalty of sin, but now that righteousness can actually start to affect our lives so that Jesus can live through us and we actually begin to live in a righteous way. So Paul here in chapter 5 is now turning away from justification, set to be set free from the penalty of sin, now he moves on to deal with sanctification, being set free from the power of sin in our lives. And what he says, he says, look, because we're now justified with faith, we have peace with God, all right? He says, well, it's all done. Our sins are forgiven, we have peace with God, we have access to him. And Paul says, this is absolutely, the this is everything that we need. And he says, it gives us great hope, um, you know, for the future. Um, you know, it's, that's the opposite to despair because we've got everything to look forward to now. And he says, even in the here and now, he says we can even rejoice in our sufferings and we can even rejoice in our difficulties. And he says, because those difficulties and those problems are God's way of producing his character in us. So Paul's saying, we've been made right with God. And he said, that's brilliant. And we can know that even the hard things now, 
this is God's way of sanctifying us, that this is the way of God producing his character in us, so that the righteousness of Jesus actually starts to characterize our lives. And he says God's very love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And then he, he, he kind of like diverts and he says, look, let's, let's establish once and for all that Jesus does love us. And he says, look, God's love has been proven once and for all to us by the fact that Jesus died for us, not when we were his friends and on his side, but that he died for us precisely when we were totally lost in sin. All right. So Jesus' death for us happened while we were completely against him. So that is God's unconditional love. He says, therefore, we're free once and for all from God's final judgment. So he says, let's forget about that. The love of Jesus is such that we can now forget about ever coming under God's judgment. It's never going to happen. We've been justified. But he says that now that that's happened, given that we have been reconciled to God through Jesus' death, i.e. this justification, this deliverance from the penalty of sin, this righteousness imputed, he says that given that that has happened, we've been reconciled through Jesus' death, because it was Jesus' death on the cross that covered our sin, all right? He says that now we've got to go on and to be set free from the power of sin. And he says this is not through Jesus' death. He says this is through the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. He says we're going to be set free from the power of sin by Jesus' life. So he says we've been set free from the penalty of sin, by Jesus' death. But he says that now we're going to go on and be set free from the power of sin through Jesus' life, because now Jesus is living in us. And if Jesus is living in us, therefore he can override our sinfulness. And he says more than that, the fact is that when Jesus died to sin on the cross, we actually died to sin as well with him. And in a way we can't understand, and there's no getting our heads around it, you and I, we died with Jesus on the cross. We died to sin. And I think I've, I've certainly shared before that, that one of the, you know, I suppose what I would call milestones in my Christian life, which, you know, which, which, which produced such a change in me. I mean, obviously, when I became a Christian and baptised with the Holy Spirit, wow, did that change me. But years and years and years later, it was when I realised that I died on the cross with Jesus to sin. That I was there in his death. That, that, that changed me even more. And so what Paul is saying, the death of Jesus justifies us, but now the life of Jesus, because he lives in us, now that life of his can go on to set us free, not just from the penalty of sin, that's been done once and for all, but now, day by day, his life can set us free from the power of sin. And what Paul moves on to do now is that he draws a contrast between Jesus and Adam. He illustrates what he's said thus far and what he's going on to say by drawing this contrast between Adam and Jesus. And uh, there's a, a, a picture here of, of Jesus being, as it were, the second Adam. And remember that Adam, you know, sort of like, he, he was kind of representative of all mankind, all right? Because he was the first man. And, and, and kind of Jesus is a representative of all those who are going to be saved. And what Paul says, he says, look, sin and death entered the world through one man, Adam. 
And having entered the world through one man, it's spread to all. Because, of course, everyone is a descendant of Adam. Not everyone it is except Jesus. Jesus wasn't, because Jesus didn't have an earthly father. Right. Um, also, this, 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 this tells us as well how silly it is when, when Christians start to play around you know, with the early chapters of the Bible and say that they're just imagery or that, that it's not true history. You know, that Adam and Eve is just kind of like a metaphor or something. Here, Paul's argument in Romans, he says, look, sin and death came into the world through Adam. So this is one of the reasons that the idea of evolution is just a nonsense. Evolution would have millions of years of death before mankind came on the scene. Well, the Bible says that death was a result of Adam's sin. This is where it's a nonsense when people try and, you know, kind of take the history out of the early chapters of the Bible. It's a nonsense. And so he says, look, sin and death came through Adam, through one man. And he says, Jesus, as this second Adam, so to speak, he, through his death on the cross, he has undone everything that Adam did. So, by Adam, Adam disobeyed God, and we were made unrighteous. We were made sinners. But Jesus obeyed God, and therefore that makes us righteous. So in the same way that I was a sinner because of Adam, I'm righteous before God because of Jesus. Jesus has undone in my life, because I'm a Christian, Jesus has undone in my life what Adam did in my life. Jesus was the answer to Adam's sin, all right? And he says, the law came along, all right, simply to make us aware of our sinfulness. So think of it, we're bent. The law was a straight line. So the law is a straight line held next to our bentness. That helps us realise how bent we are. The straight shows us that we're bent, as it were. And so therefore the law simply made us aware of how desperate our need of the grace of Jesus was. So what Paul is saying is that sin brought death. Adam brought sin and sin brought death. But Jesus brought righteousness and therefore, through that grace of Jesus, what we have instead of death is eternal life. In our lives, Jesus has overturned and undone everything that Adam did. So, what I was due because of the sin of Adam, I'm not due that anymore. What I'm rather due is the effect of Jesus' righteousness. So what I'm going to get isn't death. I'm actually going to get eternal life. Now, in chapter 6, Paul deals with a problem which one or two people might throw up. And what they might throw up is to say, oh, well, in that case, if it is true that God's grace is now dealing with sin and where sin abounds, grace doth much more abound, if that's true, why don't we just keep on sinning then? Because if Jesus' death and his life is adequate to deal with sin in every way, well, let's just keep sinning. Now remember that Paul is, is now dealing with sanctification, being set free from the power of sin. So what he's, he's going on to say, look, it would be ridiculous to say that it's okay then to just keep on sinning so that God can just keep forgiving. And he says that that is to fail to understand the gospel completely. He's dealing with the false teaching that says, well, we're saved, um, what does it matter? Let's, let's just carry on in sin. 
you know, we'll get there in the end, it doesn't matter. And Paul's saying, it most certainly does matter. And the reason it matters is because God doesn't just want to deliver us from the penalty of sin. He wants to deliver us from the power of sin. So God hasn't saved us just to be holy when we get to heaven. God has saved us to be holy on our way to heaven. In fact, what he wants is for us to be going to heaven on a little bit of heaven. And so therefore, what Paul is saying, we cannot say, well, let's just keep on sinning and God's grace will keep abounding. He says, no. He says, justification must lead to sanctification. He was saying, all right, we're Christians, we've been set free from the penalty of sin. He says, we can't stop there. He says, we've got to go on now and we've got to be set free from the power of sin. We can't just surrender to sin. We've got to change. We've got to be different. So justification, freedom from the penalty of sin, must be followed by sanctification, freedom from the power of sin. And Paul reminds them what he's already said in the last chapter. He said, look, we died to sin. He said, the truth of the matter is that we died to sin. He said, that is what baptism is all about. He says, that's why you believe and get baptised. He says, when you got baptised, you go down into the water, you are identifying with the death of Jesus to sin. You're saying that you're one with Jesus. Well, if you're one with Jesus, you're one with him in entirety. You are one with his death to sin on the cross. So he says, your baptism is saying, I've died with Jesus to the old life of sin, and I've been raised up because you come out of the water. They don't leave you in there. Churches would be very small if they did. They don't leave you in there under the water. They bring you out again. So baptism shows that it's not just the getting free from the penalty of sin, dying to the old life. It's being raised up to the new life of Jesus, a life of holiness. So Paul says, look, your very baptism, the very essence of the fact that you're Christians, is not just that you've been saved from the penalty of sin, so now it doesn't matter. You've been saved from the penalty of sin, so you can now go on and be saved, delivered, rescued from the power of sin. So he says, therefore, there's no question that we can have the attitude, oh, well, let's just go on sinning then, because God's grace will keep forgiving us. He says that is entirely wrong. He says, we were united with Jesus in his death, and for that reason we now share his resurrection life. Because we were one with him in his death to sin, we're also one with him in him being raised to that new life. So therefore, what Paul says, we must live on the basis of trusting that that is true. Do you remember, back to Abraham, he believed God and it was written to him as righteousness. He acted on the fact that if he sacrificed Isaac, he knew that God could, as it were, bring him back from the dead. So what Paul is saying, the essence of salvation from start to finish, is acting on what God has said is true. Believing God's promises against all the odds. That's what Abraham did. So the point is, you believed on Jesus when you became a Christian. You were justified. That's got you to heaven. You're going to heaven. You're now free from the penalty of sin. But in exactly the same way, Paul says we must now, against all the odds, trust the promises of God, which actually says that the truth is that we do not any longer have to sin, because we died to sin. And Paul says, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. And he says, count on it. He says, believe it, act on it, count on it. And he says, as you live, 
in obedience to that truth that you don't have to sin anymore, he says bit by bit you will actually discover that it's true and that freedom from the power of sin will become a reality. And he says that what we've got to do is to reckon it to be the case and we do that by refusing to surrender our bodies to sin but rather surrendering our bodies to God. And he says, when we're under grace, all right, as opposed to the law, he says, we actually now become slaves to the Lord. He said, when you were under the law, when you were a sinner, when you were still lost, you were slaves to sin in that slave market of sin. You couldn't get out. You couldn't stop sinning. It was completely uh, powerful over you, all right? You needed to be redeemed out of it. But Paul says, but when you've been redeemed out of the slave market of sin, when you are justified by faith, he says that doesn't mean that you're then free to do as you like. You know, to say, oh, well, let's carry on in sin so that grace may abound. Paul says, no, the truth is, you're a slave one way or the other. And he says, the truth of us as Christians is that we're no longer slaves to sin. But he says, that doesn't mean you can do what you like, because he says, now we're slaves of righteousness. He says, you're a slave to something, and you're either a slave of sin or you're a slave of righteousness. And he says, look, in the same way that our past slavery to sin as unbelievers meant that we were getting more and more wicked. Remember we saw chapter 1, Paul says, God's judgment is he hands you over to your sin. That's what you won't have it, and in greater measure. Here, let me give you more. That's the basis of God's judgment. In the same way that people end up in the lake of fire, what do they want? When people reject Jesus, what do they want? They want to be free of God and his holiness, and they actually want everything that Satan is offering them, even though they don't believe in Satan. So God says, right, you can have what you want. You may have eternity in Satan's home. You can't have eternity in my home. That is the essence of judgment, because God's given us free will. He gives us what we want. But when we repent, when we cry out to Jesus to be saved, he gives us what we want. That's brilliant, all right. So what Paul is saying, look, when you were in slavery to sin, you were becoming increasingly wicked. But he says, but now that we're saved, he says it should mean that now God's righteousness means that we're becoming increasingly holy. You see the contrast? So Paul's saying to be justified must lead to being sanctified. It's a nonsense to say, right, as it were, Jesus is my saviour, but he's not going to be my Lord. Paul says that's a nonsense. To be saved from the penalty of sin must mean that you go on to that process, and it is a lifelong process, of being set free from the power of sin. And Paul just ends this contrast between Jesus and Adam by saying, look, in exactly the same way that the wages of sin was death, and that's what we got through Adam, he says, remember now, the wages that we face is eternal life in Jesus. That is our future. So therefore, how much more important is it that in the present we are living holy lives? Now, in chapter 7, he, he kind of deals with the, this thing about freedom from the law because there, there were all the problems of, of people saying that you've still got to be under law and you've got to, to be obedient to God in order to earn his blessing. And, uh, and basically what Paul is saying, no, look, that, that we are completely free from the law. He says grace is undeserved kindness. There's no question of going back to, to law-keeping by thinking, if I do this in my strength, then God will reward me, blah, blah, blah. And he illustrates it through marriage. 
And he says, look, if a marriage is dissolved by death, if you've got husband and wife and the wife dies, he says, look, if the wife dies, then that husband has no more duties towards that wife whatsoever, all right? But he says that if he remarries, then his duty is to this new wife, not to the old wife. And he says, look, in the same way, we've died to the law. You know, sort of like, say we might once have been married to the law, i.e. just stuck with our own efforts. He says, the law has now died, or if we've died to the law, that marriage has been dissolved. We have no more responsibilities to the law than a wife does to a husband who is dead. But, he says, if you remarry, then your responsibilities are to your new spouse. And he says, so our responsibilities now, okay, are to Jesus. So now we're, as it were, married to Jesus. And then using the picture of marriage and children, marriage bringing forth children, he says that in the same way that when we belonged to the law, all right, uh, you know, it kind of, it brought forth death. Because it doesn't matter how hard you try to be holy in your own strength, you can't do it. He was saying that, that the result of, as it were, being married to Jesus, being bound to Jesus, the, the children of that union is holiness. So when you're under the law, the result of that union, the children of it, is where is death. But now our union, as it were, is with Jesus. We're one with Jesus. So the children, the fruit of that union, is going to be holiness, is going to be, uh, you know, kind of the life of Jesus within us. And so he's saying, look, having now been set free from the law, from that life of self-effort, he says we've been set free from that, but we've been brought into service in what he calls the way of the Spirit. So again, there's no such thing as absolute freedom. If we're free from the law, our own effort, that's only because now we're in servitude to Jesus himself. And then he goes on to say, and to underline, he says, but of course I'm not saying that the law was no good. Because people are saying, oh, so now you're saying the law was sinful. Now you're saying, because of course God gave the law. And they're saying, how can you say that the law's wrong if God gave it? And Paul says, I'm not saying the law is wrong. He says, I'm not saying the law was sinful or anything like that. He says, what I'm saying is that you've misunderstood why the law was given. The law was not given so that by obeying it, you could be right with God. The law was given to show you that you cannot obey it and therefore cannot be right with God in your own strength. So the law was there to highlight sin. Then Paul gives the example. He says, the law said, do not covet. And he said, as soon as I hit up against that in the law, he said, crumbs, I realise that what a covetous man I am. And he says, it kills me, stone dead. The law shows me that I am a sinner. And so therefore, because it also then goes on to show you that you can't put it right, how do you stop being covetous? You can't. What it shows you is that you are in need of power and strength from somewhere else. And of course, what is it? Back to the early part of his argument. It's this righteousness that God has given apart from the law that we receive as a free gift when we believe in Jesus. And then Paul does a bit more autobiography now. And he describes his own struggle with the power of sin in this process of sanctification. Remember, Paul has said in chapter 5 that even all our difficulties and all the problems that we go through, he says they are there to bring God's character out in us. 
Because, of course, what happens is it's the problems that reduce us to nothing and drive us to God on our knees in desperation. That is when the life of Jesus comes out. That is when we're no longer trusting in ourselves. So what Paul does now is he describes his ongoing struggle with sin as part of this process of his sanctification. And, of course, the truth of it is that Paul finds that he has two natures. He finds that even though he's got the new nature, that even though now he's been created in the image of Jesus, even though now Jesus himself is living inside of him, Paul finds that his sinful nature is actually still there. And that his sinful nature is only overridden to the point that he's actually trusting Jesus and being obedient to him. And what Paul says, look, I desire the good, but I find again and again I do the evil. Or he says, I hate the evil and I'm determined not to do it, but he says, crumbs, I find that that's the very thing I do. And he says, all the time, whenever I want to do right, I find that sin is there, it's lurking, it's lurking away. And of course, what this is doing, is Paul demonstrating how ridiculous <coughs> the idea is that we can be sanctified, that we can overcome sin in our own strength. Because we can't. There's no question of it. The only way that sin can be overcome in our lives is the power of Jesus overriding our sinfulness. But then, having done the, these verses of despair, and he, he ends up crying out, O wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? And yet that cry, O wretched man that I am, is so often the secret of sanctification. It's that desperation Paul was at an end to himself. Paul had reached the point of forever giving up on any idea of him being righteous in his own strength. And that's a vital place to be as a Christian. And it's somewhere we have to go back to again and again and again. But Paul, he rejoices in the fact that it's the death of Jesus and the life of Jesus that can bring this victory over sin. And what he concludes himself is that in his mind, he's a slave to God's law in the sense that he, he wants holiness, he wants what God wants, but he's still a slave to the law of sin in his sinful nature. So what Paul is saying is that it's only Jesus overriding his sinful nature that can in any way bring a measure of deliverance from the power of sin in his life. And in chapter 8, he, 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 he moves on to say, look, that, that, that we're not condemned purely to this law of sin and death. He says we still experience it as Christians. We find that that old sin nature is still there, but he says that we are not condemned for that to be the only story. He says, because it isn't. He says there's a new law that Jesus has brought into our lives, the new nature, and he calls that the law of the Spirit. He says the Mosaic law can't help you there because that depends on human effort and ability. But because of Jesus becoming our sin offering and because of everything Jesus has done and because Jesus lives in us, he's got a new law operating in us. And, I mean, picture it like this, you know, that you've got a caterpillar and that caterpillar somehow feels that he should be flying. But if a caterpillar kind of like belts along a branch and jumps off and starts flapping, what's going to happen? He ain't going to fly. Because the law of gravity is too much for him. He's subject to that law and down he goes. But one day, when he's a butterfly, when a new life principle has taken over and developed in him, then that butterfly can fly because he's got wings now. The law of gravity is still there, dragging him down, but because he's got wings, he's subject to a higher law, the law of aerodynamics, and so he can fly. And what Paul is saying is that 
the, the law of gravity, the law of sin and death is still there, but we've got wings now. Jesus lives in us. We've got a new nature. And because we've got a new nature, that is subject to the law of the Spirit. So in the same way that a bird can fly because it's got wings, it's subject to higher law. And he says that's the same with us. And he says it's the Holy Spirit who makes this a reality in our lives. And the Holy Spirit is the means of us being sanctified. The Holy Spirit is the one who controls us rather than our sinful natures. Now, of course, the key is who are we going to surrender to? My sinful nature or the Holy Spirit? To the extent I surrender to my sinful nature, I'll be under the law of sin and death. But to the extent that I surrender to the Holy Spirit, I will be under the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, as Paul calls it. And therefore, will be in the experience of a measure of deliverance from the power of sin in my life. And so, as the one who actually raised Jesus from the dead, and Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, it is therefore the Holy Spirit who imparts this life of the resurrection of Jesus to us, i.e. another way of saying that Jesus lives in us through the agency of the Holy Spirit. And because he lives in us through the agency of the Holy Spirit, he is our wings. And if we would but flap them, we'll be able to fly. We'll be subject to the higher law of the life of the Spirit in Christ Jesus, i.e. we will experience deliverance from the penalty, uh, sorry, from the power of sin through the life of Jesus, i.e. sanctification. And Paul says, look, we've been made sons of God by this Holy Spirit. And he says, our slavery to sin has been replaced by the heirship. He says, we're son and heirs. He says, rather than being slaves to sin, we are heirs now of everything that God is and everything that God has. And Paul says, we can call him Abba Father, which in the Greek is the most intimate baby, it's the first word, Dada. That's the closeness that we have with God, and that's the dependency we should have on God. You know, as a little baby is with its parents, that's the dependence that we should have on God. And because we are heirs, one day we are going to share Jesus' glory. One day we are going to be just like him. We are going to be sinless, and we'll move on to that in a moment, future salvation. But he says, but in this life we're going to need to share his sufferings. Because it's sharing his sufferings, it's the problems and the difficulties that are doing the Holy Spirit's work of bringing us to nothing to make us depend on him rather than ourselves so that we can experience deliverance from the power of sin. Now Paul moves on. We've done past salvation, deliverance from the penalty of sin, past tense because that was done when Jesus died on the cross and we believed on him that's once and for all. We've done present salvation, deliverance from the power of sin in our lives. Paul now moves on to what I call future salvation and he moves on to the fact that one day we're going to actually be set free from the very presence of sin, what you might call glorification. And Paul says, look, this suffering uh, in chapter 5, he says, produces God's character in us. I, all the problems that we go through to sanctify us, he says, look, all this that we're experiencing now and our struggle with sin in order to be sanctified, he says, is nothing compared to the glory that one day is going to be revealed in us. So one day we're going to be glorified. This is glorification, future salvation. And he says, in actual fact, the whole of nature is just waiting 
for the day when the glory of God is going to be revealed through the sons of God. And at the moment, the, um, you know, the universe is subject to decay. But it will be at the rapture when all believers are revealed in glorified bodies. It will be their glory, that reflected glory of Jesus, that will actually set the universe free from the results of sin. And that's why in the thousand-year reign of Jesus on earth, the earth is restored to how it was before the flood, restored to perfection. And so the point is that in the future, when we die, it's guaranteed that we're going to be glorified. We're going to be set free from the very presence of sin. And that's going to be when Jesus comes again. And it will be that, Paul says, that completes this adoption that we're going through, i.e. God adopting us into his family. We're born again, we're adopted into his family. And he calls also this redemption. God buying us out of the slave market of sin. He says it will be completed one day in the future when we are perfect in holiness, just like Jesus is. And so the picture that we've got that's built up in Romans thus far is this. We've got what I call past salvation, present salvation and future salvation. We've got justification, past salvation, freedom from the penalty of sin. It is righteousness imputed, and that is through Jesus' death. We've got sanctification, present salvation, going on moment by moment now. Deliverance from the power of sin in our lives. And that is righteousness imparted. And that is through Jesus' resurrection, because he lives in us. It's through his life, his righteousness being lived out in us now. And then we've got future salvation our glorification, when one day we're going to be freed from the very presence of sin. And that will be righteousness perfected. And that will be at Jesus' return, at the rapture. And so Paul winds up this section by saying, look, and we, we, we wait for that. He says, down here it's, it's all struggles and strife. He says, down here it's all suffering and problems. It's more than that, of course, but our struggle with sin characterises our life. The struggle of the process of being set free from the power of sin is not easy. But he says, nevertheless, we patiently wait for this future day when our battle with sin will be over completely, will be glorified. And he says, we wait for it completely assured that it will happen. No question in Paul's mind that salvation could be lost. Absolutely not. And he says... But in the meantime, while we are patiently waiting, he says the Holy Spirit helps us in our prayers because of our weakness and ignorance. Now, that for me, you know, I, I mean, you get so much today, don't you, this kind of triumphalistic Christian life. Like you wake up in the morning and the presence of the Lord is there and the whole day is just rejoicing in the Lord. And uh, Well, okay, that, that would be wonderful. But this, this for me is more realistic. Paul sums up our life down here as needing the Holy Spirit to help us pray because of our weakness and ignorance. That's me. That's, that's much closer to me. That, that sums up my Christian life, all right. And, you know, but Paul says, nevertheless, we are going to get there. And so it makes what we're going through now all the more bearable because we know that we are going to get there. And he says, look, underline this. In all things, God works together for good to them that love him and are called according to his purposes. That's what he says. He says, be assured that everything that you're going through, all these bad times, 
all these problems, all these sufferings, <coughs> all this weakness in prayer, blah, 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 all the defeats that he outlined in his own life in chapter 7. He says, be assured that through all this, God will work it for good. And he says, do you know why? He says, it's because we are called and it's because we are predestined. And he says that is ultimately the basis of how we can absolutely know that we're going to get there. And that it's all going to work out absolutely wonderfully because God called us to be his children and he predestined us to make sure we would be his children. It's as simple as that. And what he then goes on to say is he says, look, and realise that therefore, if that is true, God is sovereign, no one can thwart God's will, and God has called us and predestined us. And he says, therefore, if God be for us, which he most definitely is, I mean, we've got to make sure that we're for the Lord, but the Lord is most certainly for us. He says, look, therefore, if God be for us, who can be against us? He says, I want you to understand that really there is no meaningful opposition to your Christian life in any way at all. Oh yeah, people be against you, saint will be against you. But he says, look, if God is for us, he won't be against us. He says, if the sovereign God is behind us and backing us, what does it matter, the opposition we face? And, you know, and, and he says, look, this sin issue is completely settled in our life. And that's what matters. We are saved from the penalty of sin. And what he goes on to do, and I'll just read these last verses in chapter 8, draws a lovely picture here. And let's, let's, let's actually read from verse 28. He says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, which if you believe in Jesus you have. For those God foreknew, he also predestined. Now then, what did he predestine us for? He predestined us to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. See, we're going to be glorified. We are going to be completely saved. Right? Our salvation is going to be complete. We are going to be just like Jesus. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Look, when God became a man in Jesus, we saw the first man that God become. And there, in a man, in a human being, is the full glory of God. Now, Jesus is unique because he alone is God. But we will one day share his glory just like he does. We won't be God, but we will share the glory of Jesus. We will be just like him. That's what we've been predestined to. It's going to happen. Nothing can prevent it. And Paul goes on to say, so he says, God foreknew us. So well, he knew you before we were born, he, before he created. And he said, Joel, I, he, I'm going to predestine Joel. And Joel is going to be conformed. Robert, him too, is going to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. Look, and those he predestined, he called. Because, of course, once you're around, once you're actually existing, God says, right, oi, you. See? And you come. You come. Because God gives you that gift of repentance and faith in him. So those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. Complete full salvation as we're seeing it. 
And he says, so what should we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he says, look, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with, that, with him, graciously give us all things? He says, God will hold nothing back in order to complete his work in our lives. Now, look at the picture that Paul draws here. It's a courtroom scene. He says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Now, if you're in court, here's a bit, Satan's got you in court, you're feeling condemned, all right? And what's the first thing that happens? You're charged, all right? Well, Paul says, no, there's no charges against us, all right? Not in this courtroom. And then he says, it is God who justifies. So God says, no, you can't say they're guilty because I say they're innocent. And then he says, who is he that condemns? Or to condemn, you're charged, and if the, if the jury finds you guilty, then you're condemned. You're found guilty, you're condemned. And God says, no, they're not, not innocent. And then he says, and who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Because if you're found guilty in court, you're separated from society, you're sent to jail. And of course, if you're a guilty sinner, what are you separated from? The love of God, because you spend eternity in the lake of fire. And he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he then goes through a list of all the things that can't separate us from the love of Christ. So can you see, Paul is winding up this section in Romans, and this is where we're ending, and the end of chapter 8 is kind of like halfway through, and then he goes on to other things, all right? What he's doing is he's drawing the line under this whole thing about salvation by saying, in God's courtroom... There are no charges to be read against you. And if there are no charges to be read against you, you can't be found guilty of anything. And if you can't be found guilty of anything, you can't be thrown into jail. You can't be separated from God. That's our status. That's what salvation is. We're justified. Justified, never sinned. That's my status before God. So, therefore, Paul says, right, let's go through a list of what can't separate you from the love of God. Right? Let's, let's list the things that can't stop you getting to heaven. Trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword. No, none of them can separate us from the love of God. No, in all these things we're more than conquerors. I am convinced that neither, now let's do some other things, death, nor life, angels, they're the goodies, demons, they're the baddies, nor the present, nor the future, so nothing that's ever going to happen, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul says, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Nothing in the universe, nothing in God's creation can prevent us from being glorified and made just like Jesus. Why? Because we're saved. Because we have salvation, past, present and future. Because we have past salvation, we're justified, future salvation, being glorified, is guaranteed. But what Paul pleads with believers is, will you please be sanctified as well? Will you live holy? You are going to be holy, whether you like it or not, in heaven for eternity. So will you start being holy now? That's the appeal. That's the challenge. Right, so that concludes Paul's first major section in Romans on the whole thing about what salvation actually is. And uh, next time we'll um, head into chapter 9 and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do the rest of it. So there, there you have it, salvation, past, present and future, Romans part 1.